Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. If you would read along with me as we go. It should be on the screen there. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If you would, pray with me as we get started this morning. Dear me, Father God, Lord, can I just pray that you're with us this morning as we, we talk about who you are, Lord. That you are one God, three in persons, Lord. I pray that the doctrine of the Trinity as we look at that this morning is something that we rejoice in, Lord. That we are in awe of, Lord. That we come out of the sermon this morning with just a bigger view of you, Lord, with worship in our heart, Lord. I pray, Lord, as a body, that we are not ashamed or embarrassed by the doctrine of the Trinity, but instead we rejoice, Lord, seeing that the the doctrine of the Trinity, Lord, explains so much, reveals so much, and is so important, not just to your word, Lord, but to, to reality that is outside of us, God. I pray, Lord, that you just open up our minds to these deep truths and just be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Last week, uh, we ended with a question, and and the question was this. How does unity, unity within the body, and we've been talking about unity for weeks now within the church, how does unity glorify God? And I said that that may sound like a dumb question because unity is a good thing. It's something that's attractive. Peace is attractive. But how does unity truly glorify God? The answer that we gave last week is is that it glorifies God because it reflects God. Unity reflects God because God is unified. He is one. He is at peace within himself. He is a God of love, right? He is a triune God, three persons who are who are perfectly in love with each other, perfectly love each other, who who are at peace with one another, who are perfectly unified. Look at verse 4 again. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out the foundation to unity within the body. It's the Trinity. Verse 4 focuses on the spirit. The body is, or there is one body and one one spirit. Verse 5 focuses on the Lord, which is Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6 focuses on the Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, our unity as a church body, our unity glorifies God because God is a tri-unity. He's a trinity The Trinity is foundational to our unity, and therefore it shouldn't surprise us that the book of Ephesians highly exalts the Trinity, because this book is is mostly about unity. 
Right? That's the overarching theme is unity and love. And, and Paul just highly exalts the Trinity everywhere. Many theologians even refer to Ephesians as the Trinitarian letter. We see the activity of the Trinity no less than eight different passages within the short letter to the church at Ephesus. Let me just give you some examples. Chapter 1, of course, we spent so much time on verses 3 through 14. This amazing doxology, praising God for his grace. It's really one sentence in the Greek, 202 words long. The longest sentence in the, the New Testament that's praising the Trinity, past, present, and future. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 14 is the complete work of redemption by the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only place that we see the Trinity in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 real quick. Ephesians 1, verse 16. We should be familiar with this by now. Paul is, is praying. He says, I, I do not cease to give thanks for you, the church of Ephesus, remembering you in my prayers. And this is what he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation the knowledge of him. Jesus, right, the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Father of glory, spirit, spirit of wisdom. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus, Spirit, Father. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 22. In him, that's Jesus, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You have Jesus, God, Spirit. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom, or from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, that's the Father's glory, to be strengthened with, with the power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We have Father, Spirit, Christ. Now turn to Ephesians 5 verse 18. It says this in verse 18, chapter 5, And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. You have Spirit, the Lord Jesus, God, the Father. Now turn back to Ephesians 4.4. 4. This is the clearest passage in all of Ephesians on the Trinity. And I was planning at some point to, to take some sermons and just talk about the doctrine of the Trinity because it's so highlighted in the book of Ephesians. And I feel like there's no more appropriate place than, than here. Ephesians 4, verse 4. Right? The heart of Paul, Paul giving the, the theology of why we are one body unified and calling the church to live as one. He says this, Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You have one spirit, one Lord, and one God. Ephesians 
highly exalts the Trinity. It's a high exaltation of the Trinity, which is foundational to unity. Our unity, in other words, as a church, our unity glorifies God because, because God is a tri-unity. Because of this, we're going to spend this week and next week just focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity. And really, this week and next week, I want to try to answer three questions. This week, I want to try to answer two questions, and, and they're, they're, these are the questions. The first one is this. Does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? That's the first question. The second question I'm going to try to answer is, does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? Next week, we're going to answer, how does the doctrine of the Trinity impact our lives? Today is going to be more of an apologetic sermon, laying the foundation of what, what is the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and, and is it something that, that we should be ashamed of or afraid of as Christians? It's more of an apologetic sermon, but that lays the foundation for next week, which is a more practical sermon, how the doctrine of the Trinity applies to our lives and how we can live glorifying God with the doctrine of the Trinity as our foundation. So today is going to be more of an apologetic sermon. If you don't know what that word means, apologetics is just the field of Christian theology which presents reasoned answers for the Christian faith, or another way of saying it is defending the faith against objections. There's two goals that I have today, and the first one is this, to show, show that the Bible supports the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, it's where we get the doctrine of the Trinity. And second, show the need for a triune God to understand the world around us. The need of a triune God to understand the world around us. So the first question I want to tackle this morning is, does the Bible demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity? And the answer is yes. We can move on to the second question now. Just joking. And we want to try to answer this question from Scripture. And I want to start by asking you another question, actually. What is your ultimate authority? What is your ultimate authority? What do I mean by that? How do you take a belief in something and make it a knowledge of something? Let me give you an example. If I, if I told you, and we do this all the time, and, and, and every day we do this, and if I told you, I believe it's sunny outside— how would you take this to, I know it's sunny outside? It's not a trick question. You can answer it. Go outside and look, right? What are you doing in that moment? You're proving a belief. You're justifying your belief. We need to justify our beliefs to classify them as knowledge. Actually, a good definition of knowledge is just this. It's justified true belief justified true belief. And there's three main ways in the history of philosophy to justify a belief. The first way is empirical observation. This is a fancy word to say our five senses. That's what we're doing when we go outside to see if it's sunny. See, smell, touch, hear, feel. You can see the sun when you go outside. You can feel the heat of the sun when you go outside. Therefore, you know it's sunny. The other, another way that we justify beliefs is reason. I know 2 plus 2 equals 4 because of reason. The third way in the history of philosophy that we justify belief is through revelation, that truth is revealed to us, and Scripture is revelation. It's, it's truth revealed to us by God. So what is your ultimate justifier? What is, is also, 
Whatever your ultimate justifier is, I should say, is also your ultimate authority. In other words, if God's revelation, the scriptures, if the Bible is your ultimate justification, it's also your ultimate authority. And if it is your ultimate authority and your ultimate justification, then you must believe it even if you can't explain it through empirical observation or reason. And, and we do this all the time as Christians, right? We believe in miracles. You ever, ever seen a miracle in the scripture, Jesus walking on water or feeding 5,000? Can you reason that? You can't. We, we believe it because scripture says it was true or angels or Satan, right? Or, or supernatural events that happen in scripture like a talking snake or the virgin birth. Listen, the Trinity is one of the hardest doctrines because it can't be justified by empirical observation or reason alone. In other words, let me put it this way. Empirical observation, our five senses or, and, and or reason will not get you to a trinity. Will not get you to a triune God. Yet it's foundational to Christian belief. Why? Simply because God has revealed himself as a triune God. The Bible as a whole, the Bible as a whole claims three things. And here's the deal. You're not going to find the word Trinity in Scripture, and I'm going to be clear on that. And you're not even going to find a passage that clearly explains the Trinity, but the Bible as a whole claims three things, and the three things are this. First, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, each person is fully divine. And third, there is one God. God is one in essence, yet three in persons. Not because reason or empirical observation has got us here, but because the Bible has revealed this to be true, that we know that God is a triune God. So does the word demand to support these three points? The three points are, again, that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. The second point is all three persons are fully divine. And the third point is there's one God in essence. Let's just go through those three points and see what Scripture says. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. A great example of this is just Jesus' baptism. Let me just read it to you. It's Matthew 3.16. It says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son who I am well pleased. We clearly see the three persons right there. The spirit is descending like a dove. The father is in heaven saying, this is my son who I am well pleased. And the son is being baptized. You know what's funny is actually um, a Jehovah Witness came to my door who doesn't, don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Came to my door and he used this passage to say that the father, um, the son, and the Holy Spirit are separate. And I said, yes. Just threw him right off. He was, like, he was not expecting me to say that. I said, yes, there are three distinct persons. That's part of the doctrine of the Trinity. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. They're distinct. Jesus' ascension is another good example. John 16, 7 said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. That Jesus go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is the Spirit. Right? Jesus must go to send the helper. They're distinct. And as a side note, the helper is a person. Jesus says, I will send him to you. 
Or John 14, 26, which is just an interesting passage. It says this, but the helper, again, that's the Spirit, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. You see three distinct people right there. The helper is the Spirit, the sender is the Father, and the person speaking is the Son. Without a doubt, they're all distinct. But here's another question we need to answer. Are they all persons? Are they all persons? And no one really struggles with the Father and the Son being a person because they show personhood very clearly. But some struggle with the Holy Spirit being a person. Again, Jehovah Witnesses would, will come to your door and say the Holy Spirit is not a person. He's a power or, or he's a force. He's God's force or God's power. Well, is the Holy Spirit a person? There's at least four ways the Bible shows that the Holy Spirit is a person. First one, and one that is probably the, the greatest one, is the Spirit is referred to as he, not it. Over and over again. Greek does have a neuter personal pronoun. It, it has it. And the Holy Spirit is never referred to as it. It's, it's referred to with the masculine personal pronoun he or him, showing personhood. The second example is the Spirit is responded to as a person. Let me, let me just give you some examples there. The Holy Spirit can be obeyed. That's Acts 10, 19 through 21. He can be resisted. Acts 7, verse 51. He can be lied to. Acts 5, verse 3. He can be insulted. Hebrews 10, verse 29. He can be grieved. Just think about that. How can a power be grieved? He, or, um, Ephesians 4, verse 30. He can be blaspheming. Mark 3, verse 28. The Holy Spirit not only it's responded to as a person, the Holy Spirit demonstrates the actions of a person. Right? He speaks. Hebrews 3, verse 7. He teaches. John 14, verse 26. He distributes spiritual gifts. In other words, he, he decides who gets what gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. He convicts the world of sin. John 16, 8. He searches. 1 Corinthians 2, 10. He testifies. John 15, 26. And he guides and directs Acts 16, 6 through 7. These are all traits of personhood. And lastly, the Holy Spirit possesses attributes of a person. There's three main attributes of, of a personhood. And, and the first one is Intellect. 1 Corinthians 2.10, emotion. Again, he can be grieved, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30, and he has a will, he decides. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons. But are they all fully God? Are they all fully divine, in other words? The attributes, having the attributes of God. Well, the Father is God, and this is typically not debated, and our passage is, is really clear on this. Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and end all. So that one's not debated. Is Jesus God? You know, just real quick, one of the reasons I think the, that, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't, are debated as being divine is because we have very few words that just, or very few passages that say Jesus is God or the Holy Spirit is God. And the reason is, is that word theos in the Greek is used for the Father mostly. 
There are passages, but it's mostly used for the Father. There's other divine titles for the the Holy Spirit and Jesus. The the divine title for Jesus is Lord. It's used everywhere. And if you know uh, the, the, the Jewish tradition, that word is for sure a divine title. It's what replaces Yahweh in the Old Testament in the Greek. That's why every knee will bow at the name of, of Jesus being Lord in, Hebrew, or in Philippians too. Jesus is Lord, the name that's above all names. And holy, it's another title for God, Holy Spirit. But look at what it says in John 1.1. 1, 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. That in this passage is clearly Jesus. It's logos in the Greek. It's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus clearly claimed to be God in John 8, verse 58, where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That clearly points back to Exodus 3.14, where Moses asked God his name, and God said, Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Pharisees got it because in the very next verse, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone Jesus because they knew what he was claiming, that he was God. Jesus doesn't ever deny that, that he was God too. In John 20, verse 28, Thomas answered him saying, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. He's saying, Blessed are those who believe that I am Lord and God that haven't seen me face to face. Jesus even lets people worship him. Matthew 28, 16 is a great example of this, and there's plenty of examples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Every time Jesus is worshipped, which is over and over and over again, he doesn't stop it. Just think about that. The Bible is very clear that God alone deserves our worship. Either Jesus is sinning by allowing and promoting idolatrous worship, or Jesus is God. It's your only two options. Therefore, Jesus is God. It's fully divine. The Holy Spirit is also God. Acts 5, verses 3 through 4 says this, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back from yourself part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it, was it not your, at your own disposal, your disposal? Why is it that you have um, uh, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Look at verse 3 again. It says this, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse 4, You have not lied to man, but to God. A couple of things. Holy Spirit's a person. You can't lie to a force. And second, Holy Spirit is God. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit is called Lord. Again, which shows personhood. It's also a godly title, Lord. Let me ask you a question. How can you blaspheme the Holy Spirit if he's not a person and not God? Not divine. Matthew 12, 
31 says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. The Bible also ascribes divine attributes to the Holy Spirit, such as life, truth, love, holiness, eternality, uh, uh, omnipresence, omniscience. Listen to some of the titles of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth, 1 John 5, 6. The Spirit of Life, Romans 8, 2. Living Water, John 7, 38-39. Spirit of Glory, 1 Peter 4, 14. Holy Spirit, just hundreds of times. Think about that. These are all the same titles given separately to the Father and to Jesus. Therefore, the Bible claims that the the Holy Spirit is fully a person and fully divine. Therefore, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are three distinct persons, and all three persons are fully God. Yet, there is one God in essence. There's one God in essence, and this is clear throughout Scripture. It's what separated Israel from all the pagan nations. The pagan nations were polytheistic, meaning many gods. Israel was monotheistic. They believed in one God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, and he's one. Or Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And I can go on and on and on. The Bible is very clear that there is one God, and and that's it. Therefore, God... Is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God in essence. Another way of saying this is there is one true God. And the Bible has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the early church really wrestled with this doctrine, and we are indebted to the early church for thinking deeply and doing doing the the hard work of of looking at scripture and seeing exactly how God has revealed himself in scripture. It's not a doctrine for most evangelicals that we wrestle with. It's not one that we we separate all that much on. Uh, There are Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons that disagree with us. I wouldn't call them Christians or evangelicals. But it's one we take for granted a lot of times. The early church really wrestled with this, and they concluded that God is one, in essence, three in persons. And when they did that, they started seeing Trinitarian passages throughout Scripture. Like 1 Peter 1-2 says this, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, Now there are various gifts, or various um, various of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are very, very varieties of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God. Just think about that for a second. In this Jewish culture that was radically monotheistic, this passage right here, these three verses, equate the Spirit, the Lord, which is clearly Jesus, and God on equal ground. Or Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular. Right? In the Greek, it's clearly singular. One name, in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These passages line up perfectly with the doctrine of the Trinity, right? and that's not even talking about all those passages in Ephesians that we went over. Therefore, the, the, doc, or the Bible does demand and support the doctrine of the Trinity. The second point I'd like to try to tackle this morning is, does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? First service, I had about 10 minutes to argue this. We got out a little late, but we made it. So, I think sometimes we say we can't understand too quickly. And it's true. Don't get me wrong. God is beyond us. If we could understand him, then we would be God, right? But I think sometimes we just jump there too quickly as Christians. Like God has revealed himself for us to reason and think through it. And he's revealed himself so we would know what he is like. And apologetically, I, I believe a lot of non-believers come and say, I don't believe the Trinity because it's a contradiction or it's illogical. And, and too many times Christians just answer, yes, I know it's a contradiction, I know it's illogical, but we just can't understand. I want to just think real clearly this morning on this doctrine. There's three words that kind of relate to each other. Contradictions, paradoxes, and mysteries. Contradictions, paradoxes, and mysteries. Contradictions are things that, that is something that is and isn't at the same time. It's illogical. Right? The, the, if you study logic, the law of non-contradiction says A cannot be non-A at the same time. Listen, I want to be clear on this. There's no contradictions in Scripture. There's no contradictions in God. The second word that relates that's similar is paradoxes. It seems like a contradiction. A paradox seems like a contradiction. It seems illogical, but under further investigation, it isn't. Optical illusions are, are, are somewhat a paradox, right? You see train tracks, it looks like they cross eventually, or you see, you put a stick in water and it looks like it breaks. But once you figure out how light works and how perception works, you realize, oh, it makes sense. There's paradoxes in Scripture, like lose your life to gain it. When you first hear that, it sounds like a contradiction. How could you lose your life to gain it? But under further investigation, it's talking about losing this life to gain eternal life, to gain a relationship with the Lord, which is true life. Lose a a false life for true life. Or the first will be last, and the last will be first. There's paradoxes in Scripture, and there's also mysteries in Scripture. Mystery is something that seems illogical, yet we know it's not illogical. We just don't know how it's not illogical. An example of this would be God existing from eternity past. How does that work? I don't know. (laughs) Or Jesus being 100% divine and 100% man at the same time. Or God being sovereign all-powerful in control of everything, yet man is responsible for his choices. These are all mysteries. They're not contradictions. We just don't know how they, they work. And sometimes God reveals mysteries. Mysteries in the Old Testament that are revealed in the New. For example, God being 100% just and 100% merciful. Those things don't make sense until you get to the New Testament and we see the cross where God's wrath is poured out on Jesus so that his mercy can be poured out on us. The Trinity is not a contradiction. I just want to be clear on this. 
We are not saying one essence and three essences. That would be a contradiction. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't say one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. The doctrine of the Trinity says one essence, one God, three persons. That's a mystery. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest American thinkers of all times, was quoted in saying, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. You know, side note, there's mysteries in the physical world. Black holes, we don't know exactly how they work. Quantum physics, we don't get quantum physics. (laughs) Seems like contradictions how it works. I don't know because I'm not a physicist. but Or gravity. At one time, gravity was just a complete mystery, and I hear that it still is a mystery, but no one ever said, gravity is not real. Listen, not understanding doesn't mean not real or not possible. It just means we don't understand. So it comes back to the question I asked earlier, what is your ultimate authority? You know, it's funny, Jehovah Witness once came to my door. I love when Jehovah Witnesses come to my door. I like talking with them. And he asked me once, what is your highest authority? I thought that was a great question to ask. I said, the Bible. And then I asked it right back. I said, what's your highest authority? He said, scripture. I said, great. And I asked him this, just if, hypothetically speaking, if, just just walk with me here, if the Bible claims that God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and if, again, hypothetically speaking, if, it claims that each person is, is fully divine, and, and yet at the same time the Bible claims that there is only one God. Would you believe it? And he said, no, because it doesn't make any sense. And I said, the Bible isn't your ultimate authority then. Reason is. Your own personal reason is. Why is this important? Well, first of all, just because the Bible teaches it. This is how God has revealed himself. Right? But second... Our salvation requires it. The death of a mere man, no matter how noble or good or righteous, cannot provide the the purchase price required to redeem other men from their sins against an infinite God. Because the price we owe is infinite. But because Jesus is God, is eternal, and is infinite, he alone is able to satisfy the penalty of our sins. In other words, Jesus had to be of infinite value to pay an infinite price. But I want to take this a step deeper. Presuppositional apologetics is one of my favorite subjects, and I want to take a presuppositional apologetic approach. I know those are fancy words, but it's just, it's just this. I claim, I claim the Bible is trustworthy because it says it's trustworthy. In other words, I believe the Bible by faith. And it allows us, it allows me to make sense of the world around me. It allows us to make sense of the world around us. It allows us to make sense of reality. It's a reasonable faith. I believe it by faith, but it's a reasonable faith. And I want to ask this question. What do we see in reality? Unity or diversity? You know what we see? A universe. Una comes from the word unity, and verse comes from the word diversity. We see a universe. We see a world full of unity and diversity. I want you to think about this for a second. 
If you see a cloud in the sky, one cloud, which we don't see in California very often, but if we did see a cloud in the sky, is it one cloud or many clouds? From the ground, it looks like one cloud. But if you were to fly through that cloud, wouldn't it look like billions, if not trillions, of water drops? Again, I ask, is it one cloud or billions or trillions of water drops? It's both. It's unified, one cloud, diversity, many water drops. And this works with just about anything. Right? Just, again, think with me for a second. The oak tree that's outside, and if you just picture one of them, there's like four of them in the parking lot. The oak tree outside. Is it one oak tree or many branches, many parts? It's one tree with many parts. It's unified, uni, or unified diversity. Let me ask another question just to get our minds thinking about this. If I was to cut off a branch or two branches or three branches of that oak tree, is it now less than one oak tree? Now think about that. Its oneness, its unity, is not determined by a single branch or two or three. In fact, let me ask another question. How many branches would I need to cut off before it's no longer one oak tree? That's actually a really hard question to answer. Because it's both unified, one oak tree, diverse, many parts. Let me give you another example. A human, a human being. One body, many parts, right? If I lost my arm today, would I be less than fully human, one full human? Would I be less than fully human? No. Philosophers have argued for thousands of years whether reality is one or many. This is called the one and the many problem. And if you've been to college or if you've taken a, a, a class in philosophy at secular universities, the most secular universities, you can go to Berkeley and they're going to say, we don't have an answer for the one and many problem. Eastern cultures say it's one, everything is one. Western cultures say everything is many. We're, we're all about individuals and being particular. Philosophers can't figure it out because it's clear the answer is both. They just don't know how it's both. It's honestly a mystery. I believe the university of creation reflects the creator who is both unity, one in essence, and diversity, three in persons. Let me just give you some more examples. We've talked about the universe. Uni, diversity, universe, right? A physical world, a cloud, an oak tree, a human body. Let's talk about some other things. What about human relationships? Marriage and family. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, one, male and female. He created them, many. You know, we think of the image of God, we think of it as like our reason. It's, it's all these individualistic characteristics. But being made in the image of God is being in relationship. Marriage models God. Unity, one flesh, diversity, diverse in persons, diverse in roles, diverse in relationships, diverse in authority, diverse in gender. 
family unit as a whole, think about this. The husband has authority over the wife, scripturally. The husband and wife have authority over their children, yet they're all 100% equal in value. My children are just as valuable as I am, and I'm just as valuable as my children. The father has authority over the son, who both have authority over the Holy Spirit, yet they're all equal in value. Even knowledge itself. Ever wonder why they call it a university? It's diverse fields of study. If you go to a university, there will be different colleges, the engineering college, the philosophy college, or whatever, the humanities college. Diverse fields of study, unified in one purpose. Universities actually arose from uh, monasteries. They arose from a Christian worldview. They're called universities because they endeavor, or at least they used to, they don't anymore, they endeavor to understand how diverse, this diverse world reflects ultimate truth of its creator. That the knowledge of God, the mind of God, unified all knowledge. And because they've got rid of this unity, all we have is diversity, and colleges are falling apart because of it. There's nothing that unifies the knowledge. Therefore, my knowledge could be my knowledge, your knowledge could be your knowledge, and there's no such thing as truth. What about the church body? It should model God, right? Unified in one body. Unified in, in one doctrine, one belief, one faith. One hope we all have. One spirit, one purpose, one Lord, one God. It's Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are unified, we are one, yet we are diverse. Diverse in roles, diverse in giftings, diverse in relationships, diverse in age, diverse in ethnicity. We are one unity body, diverse parts. In fact, Romans 12, 4 says this, For as in one body we have many members. One and many. And the members do not all have the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. Therefore, The concept of the triune God not only passes criticism, but also should be expected. If the creation is full of unified diversities, then it's logical to assume that the creator himself is a more complex unified diversity. It's like saying creation is glorious, therefore the creator must be much more glorious. Although the cloud analogy fails to fully illustrate the complexity of the triune God, and any analogies fail... One should expect the creation to reflect the creator on a limited level. Thus, it makes sense for God to be a more complex, unified diversity than the cre- uh, as the creator of a, of a world, of a creation full of unified diversities. You know, someone asked Francis Schaeffer, who is my all-time favorite author, 
famous Christian intellect that would go and talk to secular universities and people that were in the, the Ivy League towers. And um, Someone asked him if he was embarrassed on an intellectual standpoint on the doctrine of the Trinity. Was he embarrassed by the Trinity? And this was his answer. Nobody else, no philosophy, has ever given us an answer for unity and diversity. So when people ask whether we are embarrassed intellectually by the Trinity, I always switch it into their own terminology. Unity and diversity. Every philosophy has this problem, and no philosophy has an answer. Christianity does have an answer in the existence of the Trinity. The only answer to what exists is that He, the triune God, is there. So does the Bible support the doctrine of the Trinity? The man to support the doctrine? Yes, or the Bible clearly does. God is three person, one essence. But does the doctrine of the Trinity make logical sense? Well, it's not illogical. It's not a contradiction. We need to be clear on that. One essence, three persons, unified diversity. It's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. But it's a mystery that creation reflects. Next week, we're going to look how, at how this doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, impacts our life. It'll be more of a practical sermon. But I want to end with this. God is love. Right? God is love. We hear that all the time. It's probably the most quoted passage in Scripture now. Right? First John. Nothing else is quoted from it besides those three words. God is love. How is that possible if he's not triune? How could God be love if from eternity past he was just by himself? The only way that God could be love is if he has been a community loving each other from eternity past, perfectly unified. Tim Chesler writes in his book, The Lighting of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity protects the gracious character of God's love. It's not only loving, God is not only loving, he is love for he is eternal community of loving relationships. When he loves us, he does not do so because of some quality in us that draws it, draws it out of him. Indeed, the opposite is the case. God loves us despite who we are. Romans eight or 5, 8 says, God demonstrate his own love that comes from within For us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us because God is love. And listen, we're invited to experience that love. God the Father loved us by sending his Son. God the Son loved us by dying for our sins. And God the Spirit loved us by enabling us to believe If you're not a Christian this morning, listen. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was raised on the third day, meaning he has proven that he is the way to life. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him and experience the love of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to know what you are like. We would never have known that you were a triune God, full of love, Lord, if you didn't reveal that to us, God. And I thank you. 
I pray, Lord, that our hearts are just full of worship as we, we examine this deep doctrine, that we are not ashamed of the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, that we are, we are excited, we glorify and worship you because you are three in one. God, I pray as a church that we reflect that, that we truly are one body, Lord, that is diverse in giftings and ages and in upbringings. So that when people come and look at us, Lord, the greatest apologetic that there is is the love we show for each other. I wonder how we could love each other so much. I pray that that is our testimony as a church, God, that we we love each other to your glory in your son's name. Amen.